I'm Bethany. And I'm Joel. And this is Sunday School Cinema. Hooray! We actually got another one out in two weeks, like we're supposed to. It's been two weeks, right? I think it's only been two weeks. I'm not sure. It might have been three. It's okay. I'm going to edit it today while Morgan and Mel are doing party prep because I'm fucking useless. So, um, and and then it'll be out on Tuesday and, and that'll be that. Okay. Well, we are talking about Roland Joffe's The Mission today, um, which I, I you probably hadn't watched since we watched it for this. I hadn't either. It'd been a very long time. Uh, I would say when we did this, it was probably one of my favorite movies that we did for the for the project. Um, how about you? What did you think about it at the time? Yeah, I mean, I I think I I think I loved it at the time. Um, I was really <clears throat> interested in it as feeling like a a complex set of questions about God and faith and things. Um, what was expected of you in difficult situations, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it has fucking De Niro and Jeremy Irons. Uh, like, I mean, it's great. Cat Liam Neeson, who I thought that was funny because I had forgotten he was in it. And he's also in silence. So maybe he just really likes these movies. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but so, yeah, so my dim memory of it was certainly positive. Um, yeah. Uh, how, how, how did you feel about a rewatch? Uh, before we get into that, maybe let's I, I think. I think Roland Joffe is like a very strange. I don't know if you've really looked much at his filmography, but he had he had two movies in a row, this one and The Killing Fields that were both like big awards movies, won Oscars. This one won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. I think The Killing Fields might have as well. I think it was one of those things where he got it like two years in a row or something. And he was like this huge deal. And since then, he has basically only done movies that look like direct to DVD things. <laughs> But he still gets like fairly big actors for them. He's still working. He still makes a movie like every couple of years, but you've never heard of any of them. Uh, it's very strange. I don't. I don't really understand. I don't understand who is still funding his movies at this point. Maybe he's like a very independently wealthy person and he's funding them himself. And I don't understand what happened <laughs> to his uh, to his skill because. I mean, I, I I have significant issues with this movie at this point, but there's definitely a lot of directorial skill going on here. And I haven't seen The Killing Fields in years either, but I remember that one being very good as well. I don't know if you've ever saw that one. I don't remember if I saw that one. I don't think so. But no, I mean, it's it's certainly, this one is certainly, it's extremely visually beautiful. It's extremely, like, the the issues, which I'm, I'm sure we will get into, uh, <laughs> um, are are not because he's a terrible director, certainly. Yeah, no, it, it won an Oscar for cinematography. It has what is probably my favorite musical score of all time. Ennio Morricone did the music for it, and it's just incredible. Um, so there's there's a lot going for it. Uh, you know, they shot it all out in the jungle, which is like a that was a that's like a a, a film tradition that has gone away, <laughs> like just taking a crew out into the jungle and shooting a movie. Uh, not you know, Herzog is obviously the the best known example of that and and Roland Joffe's definitely no Herzog but uh it's still kind of a cool thing you know you can you can tell you can tell when they do it for real um there's a lot of really incredible shots of this waterfall and like which apparently <laughs> I was a little confused about the geography apparently the only way to access this area of the jungle is to climb this sheer cliff right along the side of the waterfall and you see dudes doing it 
repeatedly in the movie, just like free climbing this vertical cliff with wet rocks and everything. It's nuts. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of cool stuff about this movie. Um, it would have been nice if they could have given at least one of the native characters a name. <laughs> I mean, so the, the movie is about, it's sort of based on, I think it's sort of a, a takes a, series of true events that happened over several years and kind of condenses them into like a loose adaptation about uh when was it like the 1750s or something it's uh, a group of of spanish jesuit monks who are missionaries to the the natives in the jungle and there's a this sort of upheaval that goes on when the spanish decide to to cede this portion of the jungle to the portuguese i guess um and it, yeah, it's it's the it's the Treaty of Madrid. That, right. Yeah, and at least the way the movie portrays it is that at this period in time, slavery is illegal in Spain, but it's legal in Portugal, uh, and Spanish and Portuguese have been essentially hunting the natives for to be slaves. But the uh, on uh, in the Catholic missions that are uh, under Spain, you know, uphold the ban on slavery. So. The, the handing over this portion to the Portuguese means that all of these natives who live on the, on the missions and have become Christians and stuff are going to be subject to slavery again under the Portuguese. Um, so the movie is kind of the, it's about that all playing out and then some of the monks deciding to, uh, to side with the natives and fight back. Um, again, all very like, from what I could tell, sort of loosely based on on real things, but like, very generously based on real things. So, and here's the other thing that this movie is about, is that weirdly this story about the treaties and the, you know, the essential attempted genocide um, and probably in some spaces successful genocide of these tribes um, ends up being a weird redemption arc for a white slaver man who murdered his brother. So that was a, that was an interesting call. Yeah, that whole thing. I mean, that, so that's Robert De Niro's character who at the start of the movie is... Uh, he is not associated with the church. He's just like a mercenary who is over there making his fortune by going out into the jungle and capturing slaves and bringing them back. Um, and at one point early on in the movie, he has a fight with his brother because the girl that he's in love with has fallen in love with his brother and he kills his brother and feels terrible about it. And Jeremy Irons, the priest, goes to him and convinces him to to do a penance for it rather than just sit and waste away. So he has, there's this whole lengthy sequence where he, he kind of decides his own penance and it's never really explained. I'm not really sure how he landed on this or what, but he, he takes like all of his armor and weapons and stuff and ties them into a big bundle and ties them to a rope that he wraps around his body and hauls the whole bundle into the jungle and up that cliff I was talking about earlier, all the way to Jeremy Irons mission at the top of the cliff. And, this is his penance, which is a, th a concept that we don't really have in, in Protestantism and is a little confusing to me. Um, but I guess in, in Catholicism is, is generally, it's a part of seeking forgiveness that you actually do, uh, you do actions to sort of try to make up for your sins, I guess. Although, um, I, I, I'm not going to pretend to understand the nuances of Catholicism and penance. I will say that I actually feel like, outside of this movie that the concept of penance is something that I sometimes feel like evangelicals would have benefited from having more of because I think that um, 
Well, for several reasons, but one of which being that I do think that people people feel guilt about wrongs that they have done, genuine wrongs, in this case, a number of genuine wrongs, um, and like want to feel like want to have done something so i mean i feel like a lot of the time we see penance with Catholicism movies it's like the you know when they're in the confessional and they have to do exhale marys and x number of our fathers and that sort of thing and like that's part of the penance like the goal is to like i i guess like think on and and take in your say i i don't know it's it's not my thing i do feel like there is something like psychologically in people that it makes sense to me that like that would have um it doesn't make a lot of sense in my understanding of christianity and that like you can't earn your salvation but that's always been like a weird you know you can't earn it but you sure as fuck can (laughs) so i don't know but yeah so he tries to drag this up there he gets he does finally get to the top and the natives like descend on him, which weirdly it doesn't, it wasn't apparent that like Jeremy Irons had like his, the, as the head of the Jesuits with up there had like considered that the natives might be, which this is the thing as a note, like not only do none of the natives get names or like anything really, but like also like there is no indication, like we are supposed to see these Jesuits as being like compassionate and caring for these people there is no indication that they see them as like more than like spiritual animals in a lot of ways like yes they they are spiritual they should be saved the lord wants to bring them into his fold or whatever but there is never an indication that any of these people have any individual relationships with any of them when people die there's not like there's not like one they're more upset about than the other you know they're all they're all completely interchangeable in the movie uh, they don't they don't subtitle any of their dialogue. None of it. Uh, they, they, and as as previously mentioned a few times, not a single one has a name. Uh, they're all, you know, it's just and and I you know I I, th- I don't know who the, I don't know who the people group they were that they got to be the extras and and actors for these scenes. Because um, like there are a few that have scenes where they're you know they're. The, the particularly this the scene towards the end with the the leader of the natives talking to the the cardinal and telling him they're not going to leave that's kind of the one like standout moment that one of them gets but even he doesn't have a name <laughs> like they're all they're all totally interchangeable within the movie and it's it i it's a similar thing like for example i mentioned herzog fitzcarraldo does the same thing right but Part of what Fitzcarraldo is about is the way that this, like these Europeans bringing their own obsessions into this part of the world where they just manifestly do not belong. <laughs> and and of course, those characters have no regard for the natives. Like they wouldn't necessarily describe them as inhuman or anything, but they're just a workforce for them. Like they, they don't care that it, it makes sense in that movie but in this one where it is supposed to be all about these guys are doing this compassionate mission and they're trying to save these people from slavery and uh, you know there's it 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 it's just it's it's the most possible it's the most western centric possible version of this story and and a, a perfect example of that as we going back to de niro and his penance thing it is clear in the movie to me at least that the sin that has really gotten him that he is doing his penance for is the murder of his brother, not the enslavement of the natives. And yet the climax of this whole sequence of him doing penance is when he receives this sort of forgiveness from the natives, which he hadn't even asked for. (laughs) 
<laughs> there was no indication that he had even realized he should ask for that. But one of them comes to him and cuts the burden off and pushes it in the river. And that's like the, that is the the sort of, it comes to him with a knife like he's going to kill him. And then uh, I think one of the others says something to him or Jeremy Irons says something to him or something. And then he, instead, he cuts the bundle off and pushes it into the river. And Robert De Niro breaks down sobbing. And this is, he's he's done his penance. He can live with himself again. And then we get this lengthy sequence of him sort of like living among the natives. But it's all very like... It's all very like a, um, it's all stuff you'd see on like a, a Facebook photo album from a 15 year old who did a mission trip in Africa, right? Like playing with the kids and getting, you know, painted and <laughs> it's, it's all very like surface levelly and, and I, like, you know, like by the end of the movie, they, he, he's learned the language and stuff, but none of that is ever focused on. It's very strange. It's very strange. It's particularly interesting thinking about the trans, the learning the language thing, um, because I feel like that's one of the things that silence does such a great job, both the book and the film of talking about is like translation, as I feel like we understand it in like a Eurocentric, particularly like an English speaking thing, because we only speak English. So we just like have this con, I mean, not everyone, but like most of us only speak English. So I feel like we just have like this concept that like, okay, he says this and they translate it into this. And this is something that like, silence talks about a lot is that like look there are words they don't have like the meaning why would they the meanings behind these words are different translation is at best an imperfect thing and it's that's never that's never addressed at all also not only do none of the characters have names but um or like get their lines translated i don't think there's a single woman who speaks except for the except for the um his ex-girlfriend slash brother's new girlfriend who he kills uh his brother for um but like none of the native it's just like topless native women like like the national geographic has taught us to expect in that space um the and like aside from like the complete silencing of the native story in a story that is ostensibly about what happened to the natives. Um, I, I think that another thing that really should not be overlooked is the, the intense emphasis on like how much better they made their lives. Their lives are so much better now that they've taken all of these Western things and look at like, it's really made to look like, ah, we have like, it's very like infantilizing and condescending. Like, look, we have helped. And like, I'm not saying that there's like no Western or innovations or whatever that might've been helpful, but like, I don't trust anything in this movie around that. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole thing with, you know, like the, the natives have their own farms and stuff that they've they've kind of put together around the around the missions and you know they they have the, they have these little communes that they're living in and there's you know this I, I guess the one the one native guy who gets like real dialogue is a priest he's become a priest I, he probably had a name I, I didn't catch it but he so he's like wearing the robes and all that you know and he's talking to the cardinal about how you know every everything they earn goes back to them. We, we, anytime we get money, we split it evenly. And the, the Cardinal's like, oh yeah, there's some obscure sect of the church in France that, that, that teaches that. And he's like, well, that's what Jesus taught. <laughs> you know, so, mind blowing for the guy. But it's, it's all like the, the one, the, like, like I mentioned, the thing that it, it kind of hits on in the end is the slavery thing that, that the, the missions are sanctuaries for the the natives trying to escape the slavers. Um, but there doesn't seem to be any like, 
it doesn't really give much in the way of like broader context or like what <clears throat> i i don't know much about the the you know the the whole the whole thing with the the spanish empire having abolished slavery while the portuguese hadn't and this sort of like transfer of territory meaning that all of a sudden these whole populations are going to be subject to slavery even though they 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 were already like that's part of the i mean de niro's character is spanish and that was spanish territory at the time and they that that was a whole a whole big part of the plot was that they were they were already being taken as slaves so the missions had become like the only places they could go it wasn't like spanish territory was was a safe haven for them it had to be the missions which is and I don't know that that I mean that is that seems very insidious doesn't it <laughs> that, uh, like the, did did the priests not have any influence to stop this this trade of slaves in the in the territory at large I don't know it it all seems very strange well and it's one of those things too where one like <clears throat> like the sort of like sub thing that is supposedly going on here is because they're Jesuits like that if they don't like back the church on this that like the Pope or whoever is like threatening to like to remove the Jesuits as an order because of their things I think that like like when it comes to because yes what you're saying is correct like they're saying that the Spanish were like they were taking slaves the sort of like explanation given is that they have to like backdoor it basically like they can capture the slaves and the Portuguese can buy them and the Portuguese sell them privately to the Spanish or whatever. Um, but like, also, like, it definitely makes it look like, like a thing that I would have been very curious about uh, that, again, I think silence, like, like, it's hard not to compare it to silence, which is so much better and more interesting of a movie. But like, right, this is Scorsese's movie silence, just for the record. I don't think we said that. Yeah. Yes. Um, but like that. Like, it makes it look essentially like they show them, like, three pictures of Jesus and the Virgin Mary, and they just, like, give up on all of their native beliefs, which we never hear anything about their native beliefs. But, like, for the record, the Guarani is the name of the tribe. They were a real tribe. Um, They did not immediately roll over and accept Jesus. There were generations of, you know, tribal uh, faith and and spiritual practices that, of course, were being attempted to be stomped out by the Europeans. Um, Like... It it just it it is it's like a it's like a Christian music video about <laughs> like most of those scenes are it it does kind of kind of yada yadas through the whole like because the, at the beginning of the movie we have this sequence where we learn that one of the one of these priests has gone up he's climbed up this waterfall to contact these people because they've had these successful missions in other areas but those areas were much more like Western influence they had like actual towns and stuff the the Westerners had actual towns. Uh, so that he goes up this waterfall to contact this group of natives that were still, you know, living in the jungle and basically uncontacted, and they kill him. They they crucify him and send the cross down the river back to the to the Spanish. Fun story. There's no historical basis for that. It was just a cool visual that was on the front of the movie of the cross of the guy going over the waterfall. It, yeah. it was a cool visual, to be fair. <laughs> but uh, so. Uh, and Jeremy Irons, who had been like this guy's superior, who had sent him up the waterfall, takes decides that he needs to go up to, you know, because it's his responsibility, I guess. And he goes up and sits down and plays his oboe. Uh, it, it just, which is an incredible piece of music. <laughs> absolutely beautiful piece of music. He sits in the jungle playing this piece of music. And a bunch of natives come out of the jungle. And one of them is pissed and breaks his oboe, but the rest of them are like, no, that was good, I guess. We don't know what they were actually saying because none of their dialogue is subtitled. Um, and 
cut from there to like several months later where we have Jeremy Irons talking to a superior and the guy's asking him about have there been converts and he's like there have only been a few but there's a bunch that are close and then cut to we see them at the mission which is like hundreds of natives living there and presumably having converted <laughs> like it's all very we don't see any of the actual like we don't even see him preaching to them or like trying to figure out how to convey this message to them or anything we don't see any of that it skips through all that we see them looking at some pictures in a book that he's brought up but also you missed the unbelievable line after that happens in the voiceover because this is supposed to be being written by one of the priests or whatever so we have periodic voiceover in which jeremy irons is sitting by watching all the natives has like fixed his has like fixed yes has fixed his oboe or whatever um enough to be still playing it and the line is like if they had had they could probably have converted the entire jungle with a full orchestra which incidentally this is a huge thing in this is that apparently the guarani and i I, i'm unclear on how true this was but apparently in this the guarani really loved music and so they start teaching them how to like make instruments and they're singing and stuff and um, and that seems to be the thing that convinced people that they were like people because they could sing beautifully in european style yeah they could they could imitate western styles of art that's yeah and what's so frustrating about this is it's like there are pieces you could have done this movie. Like there is a story here. There is interesting stuff to do as the, but they just don't. Instead, we're just constantly focused on these like white motherfuckers who like don't like, and like, no, like the, the fucking natives are set dressing like when they live and when they die, it's not. <laughs> I, so I found this article that I was looking at. So in the end of the movie, basically, they decide that um, that the mission is not a safe space. Like, the, the Pope decides to not protect, or the father, who a cardinal, whoever, decides not to protect the missions. So they're going to come in, and they're going to take all of these people. They try to convince them to go back to the forest. They're like, we're not going back to the forest. This is our home. Why the fuck did you bring us out here if you were just going to, like, you know, all of this stuff? And um, so then, like, what's supposed to be, like, the... The culminating intensity of the film, which is certainly what I was interested in when I was 20 um, or 23 or whatever, uh, was that so Jeremy Irons is really committed to the idea that violence is like against God and that he's not going to leave. He's going to stay with them, but he's not going to fight. And meanwhile, Robert De Niro, who, of course, was a mercenary and has all this training, believes that like it is immoral to not try to help them fight and several of the other monks also join him in that and they die um on the plate here's the thing not a thing that there's no evidence of any jesuits having stayed behind and died with them there's no evidence of (laughs) so like this article um so like the the film ends with the missions destroyed and jeremy irons and mendoza both dead it's visually spectacular and of course a complete fiction in historical reality the jesuits abandoned the missions in 1754 as instructed following the treaty of madrid quite apart from being led by a white slaver in search of redemption the guarani had their own leadership during the war against the colonizers during the 1754 to 56 campaign they were ably led by sepe tirahu a guarani hero who is celebrated to this day he held off spanish and portuguese forces in in 1750 and then agreed an armistice with them fighting resumed in early 1756 and he was killed in a skirmish three days before the final battle at Caibote the erasure of Guarani leadership and their replacement with fictional white interlopers is one of the most indefensible features of this movie no Jesuits died at Caveote Sepe Tiarahu must be restored to the story Um, that's despicable is what that is actually (laughs) 
Yeah, that's pretty bad. Uh, you know, it's uh, and and especially you know if you're there's you know this movie has the little text at the beginning about how it's based on real events. Like you know if if you're gonna if you're gonna just make shit up, then go ahead and make shit up. But like, don't don't try to put it under the umbrella of this is a thing that actually happened. That's real bad. Or like at minimum, at least say like inspired by, which I feel like is one of those lines that means probably not if this is true, but like theoretically, I think there were some evidence, like as far as I could tell, there might've been some evidence in, a, in like one or two other places where like a priest or something had stayed behind. But this was like, this is not what was happening. Like they were not out there. Like they were out there to save their souls. And like the most interesting line in the film to me by far at this point <laughs> is when they are initially going and they are looking at the plantations and the slaver is like, I don't see how this is any different from my plantation. Like, and the guy is like, they keep all of their own money. Like this is theirs. And then he's like, also this. And he pulls up the shirt of some dude without talking to him, pulls up the shirt of some dude who has all of these lash marks and stuff on his back. And he's like, this guy escaped from slavery and the slaver says what are a few lash marks as opposed to when I'm saving them from the eternity of hell and the thing is that while the slaver may have been like slightly more brutal about it that's what they were all fucking doing it, wa it wasn't like that is the story that is what they are doing they are going up there they are torturing them they are murdering them and even when they are not torturing and murdering them and they are ostensibly saving them they are treating them like fucking children who aren't full people and they are stripping their culture and their lives because it's all better than them going to hell <laughs> yeah the the movie literally like the final shot of the movie is a, a canoe full of naked native children paddling away from the the burning mission back into the jungle <laughs> i i think so i think we should talk about why we like this movie so much uh because i've i've definitely been thinking about that all morning um i think i mean aside from the like the you know the technical aspects that we've talked about and good performances although i don't think this is one of de niro's better performances incidentally i feel like he ends up with surprisingly little to do i don't disagree i am going to say i like the beard i thought he looked hot with the beard i, I should have done the beard more i agree it's a good look for him yeah uh, but jeremy irons is really good <laughs> and like there's but i think i was i was thinking about this about how When at this particular point in life that we were at at the time we saw it, and I think this is true for a lot of people, we were like, we had had got to the point where we were starting to see all of these, the you know the bad sides of Christianity, and we were still in the phase of trying to figure out how to excuse them, <laughs> and so we were frantically looking for examples we could point to of this is a a real Christian, uh, you know, a, a real faithful person who is actually, who actually did the right thing <laughs> because the more we looked, the fewer of them we could find. I think this, this is my, this is my, my guess as to what, uh, why we latched onto this movie so strongly. And at the time I, you know, this is not, I don't remember ever having a thought about like, man, it's kind of weird that we never really hear anything from the native people, but, the idea of having these these priests who had had stood up and done the right thing and you know fought with the downtrodden against the the spanish or whatever was 
had a great deal of appeal to me at the time, in large part because at that point I recognized the rarity of that. Um, apparently, it's actually even more rare than the movie would portray. But so yeah, that was that's kind of what I've been thinking about ever since I finished the movie. I, I think that is true. I also think there's a there's another element to this that I've been thinking about, which in a lot of ways, this movie is actually a a really unintentionally, I'm sure, is is a really great analogy for what it felt like trying to navigate evangelical stuff at the time of like, we are the main characters. Everyone else is around, but our job is to save all of these people. And the critical thing here being this disagreement between De Niro and Irons. And is it possible that God could be calling you both to different things within the same space? Is it possible? Because of course, you know, for anyone who didn't grow up evangelical, you may or may not know that like, there are a tremendous number of disagreements about like, about all kinds of things from music to which version of the Bible you use to how you raise your children and what schools of tons of things uh tongues like so many different things that split that like have denominational differences that sometimes split independent churches and i think that and and when i look at jeremy irons now i think a lot about our father and the because because it's not just that final battle. Because before that, when they are trying to convince the church that they should continue protecting the mission, at some point, one of them says the Spanish don't do slaves. It's illegal. Obviously, only the Portuguese do. And Robert De Niro stands up and says, that's a lie. Like, he knows it's a lie. He was the one out getting the fucking slaves. He stands up and says, that's a lie. The people who are hoping for them to sort of de- uh, D. What's the what's the word they use in John Wick? D. Uh, where where they like sanctify or whatever? Where the the where the um you know the hotels are sacred ground and they can. Oh, yeah. Um, anyway, I can't remember what the word is, but where they're looking to like take away the protection factor, basically, and they're thrilled about this because this man has been like insolent and has like called them out, and Jeremy Irons insists that he go and apologize. He does try to do this thing behind the scenes where he's like, by the way, like that's true, but it doesn't matter if it's true. You still have to go and apologize and you have to make right. And I think about this where it's like Jeremy Irons is convinced that he is doing the right thing. And look, I have absolutely some respect for people who are pure pacifists. um, Even if I'm not sure it's like the most practical way, but I don't think it's necessarily bad to have some of them, but like, Jeremy Irons is a fucking coward, man. I don't know. Like, he stays to die a fucking martyr's death. And, like, I'm not even saying that, like, like even obviously none of this happened, so it doesn't matter. But just thinking about us watching the movie when we were that age of, like, how do we reconcile with these people who we are like, this is wrong, and we have to do something about it, and they are like... But we have to work with the institutions. We have to, we, you can't get power by just fighting back like that. And the thing is that both, that those things end up being the things that uphold the system because like the institution is more important than any of these people. The institution and God supposedly is more important than any of these things. And so I think that what I was fixated on when I was young was like, okay, like maybe, maybe dad is a piece of shit or maybe. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't think I'd gotten that far. Or maybe like God is just calling him in a different way. And like, how can I like reconcile my feelings of like profound injustice and profound, like not even against me. We were getting to a point where, I mean, also against me, but like we were getting to a point where like, we were like, wait a minute. To be clear, I also did not notice that the natives did not say words that were translated when I first watched this. Because again, we have been so raised and blinded to be like, that's just what that's just what happens. Like you just don't, you know, they're just this people that your job is to save. But like, what does it mean to try to like reconcile and to be one faith and one body and all of these things, which at this point, I simply see as like, a lever of power within the institution to ensure that nothing actually changes. <laughs> but I think that that's what I was fascinated by at the time. Yeah, I think that, you know, I was, I was, I was also thinking about the, as far as the, the sort of the way movies portray natives generally uh, having, I've talked before about having grown up watching a lot of Westerns would be the, the obvious parallel. Uh, at the, at the point in my life when I saw this movie, this movie would have seemed like a major, <laughs> a major improvement in terms of the portrayal of natives compared to most of what I've seen. But that you know that is in in most Western movies that ha not all westerns have the the Indians as as part of the plot, but most of the ones that do, they are just a crowd of extras. And often, even when you have ones that step forward and speak, they don't translate their dialogue and you know of course they're usually played by white people which i guess that's one thing this movie <laughs> did, did a little better i guess but uh, it's it's very much in line with and would have seemed probably like a step up from what we were used to seeing in movies a fun thing that was apparently true in old westerns when they did have natives playing the background character said thing one they didn't know what they were saying they just said like say things so apparently so i when i took my native american like my american indian studies course with dan he would talk about like his aunts and uncles and grandparents and stuff talking about when they saw the tv that they would say all kinds of wild shit and if you knew the language you understood but like the fucking people who are making the movie didn't know the language so they could say whatever they wanted yeah i've heard that as well they probably just assumed it was you know i don't know if they gave them lines to say and assumed they were saying them or if they just didn't care what the deal was but yeah I've, I've heard that as well so yeah um i moved it down from a four to a two uh the four is large the two is largely based on the visual and i mean certainly the score is beautiful the music is beautiful it looks gorgeous um i mean you're certainly right that the filming and the outdoors and the jungles and all of that kind of like you can tell and it does it feels really big um but bad movie, arguably harmful movie, bad movie. Uh, unfortunate, great, some you know, some good acting. I do actually agree with you about De Niro. I didn't think this was his. He's not bad or anything. He just it it just ends up feeling like he doesn't have that much to do to me. I don't know. It's it was kind of strange. But Jeremy Irons does a really great job, and and like all the stuff is there. It's just that like the story itself is both bullshit and arguably like fairly harmful in retrospect this was made in the 80s um which is certainly not so long ago that we shouldn't have been able to figure out that natives were fucking people um but <laughs> unfortunately yeah you know eh. also apparently the vatican uh still like they like this movie they, <laughs> they they put this movie on lists of important movies and stuff so that should tell you a lot i mean this it has the thing where like you know the 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 like the church is kind of in the wrong but like it's more of like the politics are wrong and the actual like 
the on the ground church people are the ones here doing the right thing and yeah Nope, that's a good point. Uh, if the Vatican rep- re- recommends a movie uh, that talks about Catholicism, I personally would say it's probably bullshit and not good. <laughs> Did you hear supposedly Scorsese had a meeting with the Pope and told him he was going to make him another movie about Jesus? I saw a headline saying that he was going to make a movie about Jesus, but I, don't, I didn't see that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, who knows if that'll actually happen. He's he's quite old at this point, but... He's younger than Clint Eastwood, and that fucker's still out there making movies. I choose to believe that he can make movies to 100. God damn it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I want him to do another Jesus movie, necessarily. Like, I, I, I think the one that he did is probably my favorite movie of his, but, you know, I'll, obviously I'm going to watch anything he does, but... Clearly. <laughs> Well, I think that's about all I've got to say about this film. I can't imagine I will probably watch it again. I think this was, yeah, yeah, and it is so. It's, I, it's, it's kind of a shame to me because I, I, I do love the the music to this movie so much. In fact, just a bit of a, a personal story here. Uh, I, I mentioned several times before that I'm engaged. I'm getting married in a few months, and one of the things that may and i did preparing for our wedding was we we knew we didn't want to do like the traditional wedding music and we found this person who composes music specifically for wedding ceremonies and so we hired her to compose some music for us and one of the first things she had us do was send her some uh some music that we wanted to use as inspiration and about 90 percent of what we ended up sending her came from the mission school <laughs> you know so I, I I feel like a I have a, a a pretty strong connection to the music in this movie and uh, more so than to the movie itself at this point certainly um, but yeah I, I think Morricone's probably my favorite uh, composer or was I guess he passed away a few years ago now but um yeah, it's uh, it's a shame that the because uh, it is one of those things that's extra frustrating because it's like there's there's a great movie in there because it is a story that could make a great movie, um, and it's it's frustrating and unfortunate that this is this is what we ended up with is this weird sort of hodgepodge of like skill and not. <laughs> not good uh, portrayals of character and all. yeah it's frustrating that's that's the that's the worst kind of thing is when you when you see this movie that you you can you can you can look through it and see like you can point to things like if only they'd done that a little differently and you know wh- why are we focusing on this character when those people back there are clearly what the story is actually about and yeah so I moved it from an eight to a six after watching it, but I might bump it down a little farther after this conversation and after a few more hours to think about it. So, yeah, I think that's, I think we can probably wrap up on that. Fair enough. All right. Um, so what are we watching next? We have 37 movies remaining. So where are we at? What's number 13? Number 13 is Doubt. Okay, this is funny. I was actually just thinking about Doubt earlier in this conversation. I was going to bring it up because we were in in terms of like the... I was when I was thinking about the the sort of much uh, much more rigid and defined authority structure in the Catholic Church than we had growing up and how that factors into this movie. And, and I, I was thinking about Doubt in, in that context. So that'll be interesting. 
Doubt was the first movie we watched for this group. I was I have seen Doubt. I, I didn't remember that was what we started with. That's a that's a that's a big place to start. Okay. Um, I was obsessed with Doubt. I um, I haven't watched it in probably ten years. I was gonna watch it after Hoffman died, um, but I didn't. Uh, and but like, I mean, it still remains in terms of acting one of the most like wildly insane powerhouse things um like philip seymour hoffman and meryl streep going head to head it's just like really something and amy adams is great in that movie too it might be her best performance certainly one of absolutely she is also excellent um so i was like and and i do anticipate still liking this one i feel like i've seen it more recently and um I remember it better because I've seen it a lot more. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think I, I I would be shocked if I came out of this one being like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I anticipate that my feelings about some aspects of it might have changed a lot since I saw it, but I'm not expecting it to that to be to the movie's detriment. <laughs> I'm still expecting a great movie. Absolutely. No, I'm looking forward to watching it again. Uh, heavy, heavy one, uh, but uh, really just some some phenomenal work. So exciting. Um, I have not watched that many movies. You have not watched this many that many movies. This part may not take that long. I guess we'll see. Do you want to go first or do you want me to? Uh, yeah, I'll go first. Um, so right after we recorded last time, we we watched Italian American, the Scorsese documentary short that he did in 1974, where he basically just brought a camera crew into his parents' apartment and hung out with them for like an hour, which is delightful. It was. <laughs> It was so good. It's so much fun. Like it, you know. It's he's there. They were both very funny, particularly his mom, who's you know very like constant talk. Let me bring you into the kitchen and show you how I make the, the gravy. <laughs> like, it's just, just very funny. His dad was quieter, but also very funny. Um, and he, I, I noticed this thing. I've, I've noticed before, but it, it's a this thing that I think is a. I don't know if it's specific to Italian culture, but it's definitely an Italian cultural thing in conversation where they'll like, one person will say something that is like very clear and they'll say it very clearly and specifically. And then the other one will repeat it back as a question. And then they'll just say it again. <laughs> like, like I, they were talking about, a, I specifically noticed that they were talking about this painting that had been in her family and in, in his mother's family of like her uncle or some relative of hers or something. And, and she told this whole story about this painting and how like different people in the family wanted it or something. And I can't, but it ended with, and they never got the painting. And Scorsese says, they never got the painting. And she says, they never got the painting. <laughs> like, this is like a regular, this is like a really common feature in their conversation that I find really funny and interesting. Um, so yeah, that, that's one, uh, I wasn't even really, aware of but it was on that that criterion set that you have of of scorsese's uh short films and definitely worth seeking out i don't know if it's a you know it might be on youtube or something um or it might be on the criterion channel actually because they uh, they put it out as part of this collection so uh but it's a lot of fun and it's only like 45 minutes long i think it was 55 but yeah um no i i had such a wonderful time and it's honestly it's such a like as someone who's you know a social worker and interested like i feel like it there's there's like a window there into scorsese that i had never seen in any other space um and they were you could see just like the 
the entertainer element of the family and this like it was just it was such a delight like 100% would and probably will someday watch it again I like it's just it's so there's so much there in what feels like a pretty like it doesn't feel like there's a lot of structure to it or whatever but it really feels like you get such a a picture of this and like the relationship between his mom and his dad was so interesting and like it was just it was it was really really fun um and yeah if if it's available somewhere i'll i'll have it in the notes but um also the criterion disc of scorsese's you know things is like 20 bucks or something and honestly i would consider it worth it for this alone <laughs> well it's it's particularly fun as someone who has been a fan of his movies for a long time because his parents particularly his mom both show up in a lot of his movies like the the most famous example is the scene in goodfellas where they they go back to um which one was, was it De Niro's mother or Pesci's mother? I can't even remember which character's mother it was, but they go, they go there after burying the guy or no, they have, the, they have this, they still have the dead guy in the trunk. I think, and Joe, I think it was Pesci's mother and he like takes the kitchen knife. He's like, I'm going to take this knife. And then he ends up using it to stab the guy to death. I think like it was, but it's a very funny scene and she's, you know, she's in it. It's like an extended scene that she's in and she's, but I think both of them show up in, in quite a few of his movies. So like you recognize both of them if you've been watching his movies. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And you can really see their like support of him, which is really lovely. Like you can really see, like right. And this was very early on. It wasn't like he had hit it big as a filmmaker at this point. I mean, yeah, like you could really see like you know she's proud of him. She's but like in the sort of way that I associate um, listening to people who were born to immigrant parents talking about and like the sort of like we're not going to like say that out right, but like they're like there, like they're not sure. Okay, what am I supposed to be doing? And she's like excited to be on camera. Guy. I don't know. It's it's really fun. And if you like Scorsese, like it is really worth that hour of your life. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so next, I'm I'm a little behind you, but I decided I was also going to try to watch through the Mission Impossible movies again before the new one comes out because it's clear in the new one from the trailer that they're going to be like, like the character of Kittredge is back in the new one who has not been in the series since the first one. So I figured it would be worthwhile to because I haven't seen some of the early ones in several years. So I rewatched the first one. <clears throat> um, every time I rewatch the first one now, I am shocked at how much of a De Palma movie that first movie is. Um, I, I've talked extensively about De Palma on this podcast before and my mixed feelings about him and his movies. Um, but at this point, Mission Impossible is one that I really like. And it's just like, the movie literally begins with a shot of a guy watching a surveillance screen that is showing two men fighting and arguing over the body of what appears to be a dead hooker. So you have like this voyeurism, surveillance, sex violence, all that is like, that is the milieu of De Palma's movies all there right in that first shot. Like it's, it's, it's really good. I mean, just, just cool to watch. I still think the finale is, it, I think it gets real dumb by the end. I think the whole final sequence on top of the train with the helicopter and all that is just way too cheesy especially compared to what we get in terms of action sequences in the later movies. Um, but the sort of central heist at, at the CIA building is still really cool with having to, you know, get into the the room with the computer and all that. Um, so most of it, most of it still plays really well for me. I still, I still really like that first one. Uh, and then I, a couple nights later sat down to watch the second one and got about 40 minutes into it and turned it off. It is unwatchable garbage. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I, that is that is so rare for me. Like, and I've seen it a few times before. I remembered not liking it the last time I watched it. I gave it one star on Letterboxd, but I was still like, okay, I'm gonna watch through them all. I can sit, you know, it's one. I can sit through this movie. It's probably not going to be very good, but it is god awful. I mean, just reprehensible on every level. I couldn't do it. It was terrible. Like unless something major changes in the last in the next couple, it's my favorite one of the franchise at this point. No, I got I got as far as the scene with the bad guy cutting off his underling's finger with the cigar clipper for some reason in like a weirdly erotic way. Uh and I was like, no, this is I I can't do this. This is just wretched. I couldn't couldn't do it. Um <laughs> so uh <laughs> on a very different note, um I watched uh, Andrei Tarkovsky's Mirror because uh, for the same reason that I watched um, uh, Sancho the Bailiff a few weeks ago that um, the Film Spotting Podcast has been doing this series of, of movies from the uh, Sight and Sound Top 100 list that they hadn't seen before and this was one of the ones that neither of them had seen and I hadn't seen it either. Oddly enough, I, I, this is the, I have now seen all of Tarkovsky's features he only had like eight or nine, but I've now seen all of them, which is kind of odd because like I always find his stuff interesting and he's like a really incredible visual filmmaker, but I haven't really loved any of his movies, <laughs> but I've ended up watching all of them now. I did. I think I did really love and still think about um, the one that we watched together that we watched Annihilation and then we watched the movie that annihilated oh stalker yeah stalker is definitely my favorite that's the one i do actually own that one i bought that one um and uh, you know the i andre rublev had some really cool stuff sacrifice was an interesting movie um and i liked mirror as well uh there's but there was a lot about it that i felt like i didn't really understand what was going on because i think a lot of it i i think a person who grew up in the Soviet Union would understand what was going on a lot more than I did, or at least a person who knows a lot more about uh, Soviet history. Um, but it's a very, I mean, the guy, he's hes like a miracle of a visual filmmaker. Like there, there's this scene in this movie of a like a, this super wide shot of a character walking across this, this field of like, like thigh high grass. And this gust of wind comes across the grass when the guy's like right in the center and just blows all the stalks of grass down. And it's just like the most incredible visual. And I don't think there's any way they could have faked it. <laughs> like they just got lucky and got that shot. Like it's amazing. But his movies are full of stuff like that. Um, so I don't know what the, I don't know what the magic is there, but uh, his stuff is always worth checking out. Even if I like, it's very like that, sort of like slow cinema thing you know his movies are not like exciting you know but they're always worth watching uh i don't know i don't know how many of them i will ever go back and rewatch. but i felt a little bit like watching stalker after annihilation was watching it on easy mode and maybe that's the way that i need to watch tarkovsky i'm like what are the other movies that will tell me what the other tarkovsky movies are so, because i felt like i understood annihilation at least as well as anyone's going to understand annihilation like emotionally i felt like i grasped annihilation and so then when i went to stalker i felt like i had the emotional buy-in already and i feel like that's i haven't watched all of them i did see andre Rublev, and i remember similarly that there was some cool stuff in there the visuals were really incredible 
but I just couldn't like emotionally attach to whatever was happening. Whereas in Stalker, I felt like I did, but I, I will never know. Obviously, I didn't watch it before Annihilation, but I, I really feel like a lot of it was because of that. Whenever I make Morgan's never seen Annihilation, whenever I make Morgan watch Annihilation at some point, I'll probably do a double feature again because I really think it's it's incredible. But I, I'm not sure that watching it by itself would have had I, I don't know if I'm smart enough. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I get the same for me. Yeah, because we we did like we both were really into Annihilation and had uh, it was a uh, um, the Next Picture Show podcast paired them because that they do a it's a great podcast where they do they talk about some movie that has just come out and then sort of they pair it with an older movie that um, they feel has like either it was directly inspired by or based on sometimes they do like a remake of an older movie or sometimes it's just kind of a they feel like there was some of the DNA in there. Um, and that, that was the pairing they made. And I had, I wasn't really familiar with stalker at all before that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really cool movie and that, that one I will definitely watch again. Um, but maybe yeah. when Morgan and I do annihilation and stalker, I'll invite you to come have a day. I do own it. So <laughs> speaking of which I intended to bring over that planet of the apes box set today and I forgot. It's okay. You're coming over tomorrow for the party. Good point. Um, okay. So yeah. Uh, Tarkovsky's mirror cool movie I, it's on criterion i think is where i watched it um uh i went to see that the movie blackberry which uh it's um i i've, I've seen i saw a lot of people i wasn't really that interested in it because there's, there's this weird wave of like movies about products right now the nike air one which i thought looked i'm still not convinced that's a real movie i the, the trailer looks like an snl sketch to me like everything about it looks like something that was put together as a joke the tetris movie the, right the tetris movie there's a movie coming out about about flaming hot cheetos apparently uh, so there, there's this weird trend of this thing of, of movies about products uh, that I'm really not into but I, I heard a lot of really good things about this movie I saw a lot of people comparing it to the social network uh, favorably comparing it to the social network and it also stars uh, the the actor who plays Dennis in It's Always Sunny, which is uh, Glenn Howerton, which is, <laughs> is one of my favorite shows of all time. And I've never really seen him do anything else. Um, so uh, it's it is about the the BlackBerry, the the phone that the 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 original smartphone and the um, kind of the the origin of it. And Glenn Howerton plays the guy who like sort of the businessman guy who brought it to market, and then. We have um, Jay Baruchel, who is almost unrecognizable. I didn't realize it was him for like the first 10 minutes. He's wearing like this silver wig um, <laughs> as the guy, the tech guy who sort of who came up with the technology. And apparently, I don't know how well you remember the BlackBerry thing. I was like a little bit on the young side. I certainly never had one or anything. Uh, but apparently at the peak of, of BlackBerry as a company, they had almost 50% of the cell phone market in the world were Blackberries. Like it was, that was the thing it had taken over the world. And then like three years later, the iPhone came out <laughs> and just completely flattened them. So the movie kind of covers that, like from the, the whole rise and fall story. Um, and it's, it's good. It's a good movie. It's not like, it's not great. It's not the social network. I mean, you know, it's not David Fincher, um, but it is good. And the, the performances are quite good. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I would recommend checking it out for sure. Um, I worked at T-Mobile when the first non-iPhone data device came out. So we had people on our network who had Blackberries, but they had their own helpline. Like if they called us and they needed tech help, we passed them to Blackberry, much like the sidekick. I don't know if you remember the sidekick, but that was another one. Um, so 
I remember like watching Blackberry. So I never, I wasn't like working at the call center when it was like at its height, but I definitely saw it like <laughs> shrink. You were in fe- fewer transfers to the Blackberry helpline. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it is, it is an interesting story that I didn't really know anything about. So, um, and then I went to see, um, I went to see Renfield a few nights ago, which is largely a like, I have an evening with nothing to do and it's it's playing at the Pickford in like 15 minutes. <laughs> so I think I'm going to go see it. Um, it was okay. It was kind of fun. It was trying real hard for like the Shaun of the Dead vibe and it's definitely not. The, I mean, the, the guy, I can't remember the name of the guy who directed it. I think he directed the Lego Batman movie, which I enjoyed, but he's no, I mean, he's not Edgar Wright. <laughs> and like Nicolas Cage as Dracula is kind of fun. I thought it was an interesting choice to not even pretend that he had a mouthful of fake teeth because like his accent was just him trying to speak around his fake teeth which i thought was kind of fun um i really like nicholas holt um we've talked about him before and you know he has some kind of fun stuff in this but it just i don't know it it was it was another one of those movies where like i i felt like there was there was something really cool in there and it could have been a really cool movie um I generally kind of enjoy Aquafina. I I know she's she has like her detractors and problematic aspects to her persona, but I generally find her kind of funny and charming. Uh do not find her convincing as a badass at all. And also there was a lot of like real real blatant like propaganda stuff going on with her character that I was really not into. Um so like I I would say the the stuff with with the two Nicholases, Holton Cage I enjoyed for the most part, um, but most of the stuff around it I wasn't so into. And it had a lot of like the, it has a lot of like the sort of comically over the top violence where you have like people's heads getting literally punched off and stuff, which I, I kind of enjoy that stuff. Like it's not like my favorite thing in the world, but I kind of get a kick out of it. So, you know, it had that, but it's not a great movie. I can't imagine I'll ever watch it again. Yeah, I thought it was so aggressively mid and like I... I love Nicholas Holt and I am dying for him to get like the movie star status that I really think he deserves. Um, and like, I mean, because I just, like people just, people just have to watch the great. I just like, he's so incredible in it. And not even just that is that like when I first saw him was in the first two seasons of skins, um, which a lot of those kids from the first two seasons have. Oh, I think when you first saw him was in about a boy, oh. right? Cause yes. he was like, 11 or 12 or something about a boy <laughs> that was i think that was his debut yes that's true i forgot about that but in terms of him being more of a grown-up person um and like skins is a is an over-the-top ridiculous teenage soap opera but his character in skins has at the end of the first season he gets hit by a car spoilers for the 1990s or early 2000s skins i guess um gets hit by a car um and lives but has head trauma and the entire second second season is him like you know he has headaches he can't think well he can't like he is experiencing a tbi and it's incredible and like all of these other teenagers like trying to you know like what the fuck do you do when your friend suddenly like isn't your friend anymore and like whatever and like it's a story that i've very rarely seen uh and he and he was very young i think he was only like 19 or 20 or something at the time and he was so good and i just like i just know that he is just such an incredible actor and i'm just waiting for him to like get the role because like i think the great is like the maybe some of the best possible use of his talents but like 
not enough people watch it. I want <laughs> to get to, and so I partly I was just disappointed because I was just like, this is not gonna help with that. Like, it's fine. It probably won't hinder. It's whatever. I'm sure you got a paycheck, but I just thought it was so. Yeah, and I am not particularly a big fan of the over-the-top head punching off violence, so not for me. But yeah. Uh, okay, and then the last thing I have on here is Mission Impossible Three, which I watched last night, which I think is still probably my favorite of the series. I think it's I, obviously Philip Seymour Hoffman is is a huge part of that. Um, I'm pretty sure this is the only movie where he ever played like an actual villain, and he's so good. He's terrifying. There's a whole sequence where that where they're like kidnapping him and so you have they do the mask thing right from mission impossible so you have what is ethan hunt is wearing a a, a mask of philip seymour hoffman's character which means of course that what you have is philip seymour hoffman playing ethan hunt and like playing philip seymour hoffman. right exactly but but not always because he's like part of the time he's doing it in front of people so he has to imitate philip seymour hoffman but a lot of the time he's just Ethan Hunt, he's going from place to place or whatever. And I wouldn't have thought that it was like physiologically possible for Philip Seymour Hoffman to imitate Tom Cruise's physicality. <laughs> like I just it would I just would you would not looking at the two of them, you would not think that was possible. But he does it. <laughs> you know, it's not like a whole lot of it, but he pulls it off. It's so good. He's so impressive. And yeah, that always makes me sad. But um I still love that movie. The it's like that, that all I think all the Mission Impossible movies have kind of like a you know they're all kind of heist movies at their heart they all have these big heists in them Mission Impossible three has like three of them <laughs> one of which you don't even see the actual heist you just see like the 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 planning and build up to it and then you see him jumping out a window of the building you never actually see anything of how he steals the thing which I I I think is cool uh, I had Lawrence Fishburne in it as the 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 head of the IMF and who I always love. Um, I mean, all the stuff with his his whole romance with uh, Michelle Monaghan's character was is you know that's all pretty surface level cheesy. J.J. Abrams is not particularly good at that kind of thing, and I th- I suspect that a lot of that was because they weren't really expecting to get the chance to make more of these, so they were trying to give like a happy ending to the character or something. I suspect I, I could be wrong, but um, but the stuff that works all works so well for me that I. Yeah, that one's... I, I'm pretty sure it's still my favorite. We'll see if I still feel that way by the time I get to the end of this rewatch, but it's definitely the one I've seen the most. A lot of those movies, as much as I love watching them, they have they have almost like a similar thing to like film noir movies for me, where like I just... I love watching them, but they... Yeah, they just don't really stick in my head and the, the bits become kind of interchangeable and like I can't... Even now, I can't specifically remember like... Is it the fourth one where he climbs on the outside of the Burj Khalifa? Or is that the fifth one? Like, I just, I can't remember. But the third one I remember, that's the one that is really stuck in my head. So, uh, anyway, we'll we'll get to, to, to the later ones as we go here. We'll see how it goes. But Look, it has not a single slow motion dove or pigeon, and I don't really even know what the point is. So, uh... <laughs> yeah. Um, that's all I have for movies. Uh... TV stuff obviously succession wrapped up last week. Yeah, let's uh, uh let's have let's have me do movies and then we'll talk about because I'm sure we're gonna want to talk about succession. Yeah, time. okay. That works. Um okay, so I do not have a lot. Um we watched Italian American, we've already talked about that. Morgan and I watched several um five, it looks like, uh Buster Keaton movies because uh the 
podcast thing is doing Buster Keaton movies. So we watched one called Three Ages, which was his first one that he did himself. I, w- I was the thing about silent film. <laughs> is that unless you really have me it is very hard for me to continue paying attention um and this one did not really have me it was whatever the high sign which was 20 minutes and was cute uh the playhouse where he does blackface at one point unfortunately um cops which had a surprisingly dark ending um <laughs> but was like overall okay and then the balloonatic uh, which was okay, felt long. Um, anyway, they're all up on Criterion, if, or I think they're on YouTube at this point if you want to see them. Um, if you're interested in a Buster Keaton marathon, not so much my thing. So wait, five of the ten movies you have are Buster Keaton movies, or did you group those together in your ten? Nope. Five of the ten movies that I have. Um, and then Morgan and I, sort of on a whim, watched uh, The Sword in the Stone. Uh, Morgan had never seen it. I... It's in a while. It it like it's not good. It's not like a great Disney movie. It's um it's very it has basically like three of the same thing that happened with like different. The Wizard Duel is definitely the best part. I have a really like soft spot for the voice of the kid who of whoever it was that played Arthur because he has like that adolescent cracking thing that is just like throughout the whole movie, which I find very cute and also don't feel like is something that I like have seen in a lot of characters. It's not great though. It's it's whatever. Um, anyway, and then I went on vacation and watched no movies for 10 days. Um, but when I came back on Memorial Day to celebrate our troops in our country, no doubt, um, we went to go see Fast X. Um, I might have to plug my ears here. I've seen some of your tweets about it and I'm legitimately not sure I can listen to you talk about it. Okay. Well, that is a real lack of support that I find personally disappointing. Um, you don't have to like it. I can like things that you don't like. I've seen a lot of other people who have been really into that franchise tweeting about how this movie is the one that they're finally like, I'm off. This isn't, this has gone too far. I'm not into it anymore. And I was really kind of hoping for that, I guess. But it seems to have brought you back on board. I mean, I think nine brought me back on board. Eight is the one I didn't like. I really loved nine. Um, this one, I don't know if i would have loved it if it had a different villain jason momoa as the villain is such an incredible time and not aside from the movie which is obviously very very silly but like i actually went to go see it twice i went to go see it that monday and then thursday i went to go see it with ezra and mona because she couldn't come on monday um and uh one aside from the movie i actually legitimately have been having like over the last year i've had a lot of like back and forth thoughts about like i would like to also have some like mask clothes and like what would that look like and it turns out when i saw jason momoa that it looks like that i want to wear what he is wearing in like not even that far off honestly so you want to wear a pirate costume based on the (laughs) what i remember from the trailer Kind of, but more colorful and fun. He based a lot of his look on Peacock. Like, there is a moment in the, there's a scene in this movie in which Jason Momoa is wearing a light purple satiny shirt thing that is open, um, dark purple pants. Um, he has giant rings on all of his fingers. His nails are painted to match the purples. Um, he has his hair in this very like voluminous way. He has glasses that are on like this 
ridiculously overly bejeweled librarian type like string that he like takes on and puts off he and his car matches the nails and the outfit which apparently was not the original plan Jason Momoa had strong input on like like worked with his stylist that he's been working with for like 10 years and I think I really think that this is all that Jason Momoa has ever wanted to do and that this is like the first time that he has been able to have like this much fun in a role and not have to be like super super duper serious all of the time because he looks like how he does um and the chaos energy now to be clear not everyone has loved this um i i know that ezra when i went to go see it that i went to go see it with them and their partner and mona and um nettle and ezra had some feelings about uh, his performance. They felt it was a little too Silence of the Lambsy and that maybe with like the current political climate um, having this like extremely like calling him queer coded might honestly be too like this extremely queer coded villain um, who's going to steal your children might not like be ideal. And I do understand that perspective and certainly anyone is welcome to have that perspective. Certainly from my perspective, I had an incredible time. Um, I there, there was a there was a return of a character that I thought was never going to return that I'm so excited about. I will not say. Um, I had so much fun and also want to dress like Jason Momoa occasionally. So um, it was like the first time I put on a crop top, Joel, where I was like, oh, this this is part of my sexual of my gender. This is part of my gender. Anyway, um, so I had a wonderful time. It's fine. You can be a fucking spoil sport. I don't care. I had a great time and you should be happy for me. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, I've I've never really got the Jason Momoa thing. Although I haven't, I think I think Aquaman might be the only thing I've seen him in. I guess so. Maybe that's not a fair assessment. But I know he has like people are so into that dude, and I've I've never really got it. I don't. Know. I think in per- I mean you saw him in Dune, but I think that in person, yeah, I forgot he was in Dune. Okay, <laughs> I think in person he is just like a really fun guy. It seems like like a cool guy. Um, I have never been attracted to Jason Momoa before this movie. Like I'm always like like yes, uh, look obviously he he looks like that. He is obviously an objectively like handsome, muscled dude. But I have never like the the wild like chaos queer energy in this was like what did the thing for me, and it just like makes me love him a lot more as a person to have read more about like how. This, like he had vision for like how this character should be and i love that so he wore like contacts that would like strip all the warm hues out of his eyes so that he would look like bright from a distance but look cold up close anyway it made me happy don't listen to my brother who's a fucking bitch and uh <laughs> and who doesn't want his sibling to be happy <laughs> I, I i want you to be happy i just rather you'd be happy about different things but <laughs> that's Fuck not up you. to me um, it also just occurred to me, of course, that I did see him in the first season of Game of Thrones because, of course, that was kind of his first big thing. I forgot that was him. Um, that, well, was, that was I did watch the first season of that show, so I did see him in that. Yeah, and I mean that's the thing is that most of the roles he's in, he has to be like really like super serious. And as far as I can tell, that is the furthest thing from what Jason Momoa is like in person. So it felt like he was just like, oh my god, yes, I get to do all the things, and it was just it was really charming. It does seem a little weird that he hadn't showed up in this franchise earlier. Like in hindsight, he seems like a perfect fit for it. So anyway, and then last but very much not least, uh, Morgan and Eric and Alex and I last night went to go see Spider Man on the IMAX. And uh, I don't know. I'm I probably won't get to that till next week. But I'm I'm very excited about that movie and everything that I'm seeing is that it's like a fucking masterpiece. So 
I mean, it is. Every frame is beautiful. My my single only complaint is that the sound was really muddy. I'm really looking forward to... Apparently, Morgan read a whole thread this morning from the guy. Apparently, they... I don't know what this means, but any sound people who are listening probably will. They tried to use a... They, they, they made sound on more dynamic something than usual. The, the, the end result is that the theaters aren't playing the movie loud enough. And because they're not playing the movie loud enough, it like muddles some of like the middle sound channels. Um, I really definitely did miss some lines and uh, like, because I always have like a little bit of a hard time processing sound. Um, usually I'm okay in theaters, but in this one, there were definitely some times where I was like, wait, what? Um, so that was my only complaint though. And it sounds like this is the theater's fault for not, turning it up to where it should be um and um but it looks it looked unbelievable i've, I've never seen anything like it i've never like it's it, it's amazing uh so super excited about that yeah no it's one of the movies that i'm most excited for this summer that and then and the new mission impossible are probably the top of my list so and barbie and barbie and oppenheimer i'm, I'm also i'm on board for that that uh did you hear tom cruise is apparently pissed at, at oppenheimer because it comes out like a week or two after and it's getting all the imax screens that he wants for his <laughs> for mission impossible so he's like i guess he's trying to convince the distributor to move the release date up so he can get more more time on the imax screens which you know it's probably not going to happen but uh which turns out we're going to be down in portland the weekend that oppenheimer and barbie come out so i guess we're going to do our double feature down in portland do you have a suggestion for what theater we should go to well, the uh, the Hollywood Theater has a 70 million projector, and I think Oppenheimer is no. I guess it was filmed in IMAX, wasn't it? So yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't have a suggestion for an IMAX theater. Yeah, I I didn't do much of that down there. Yeah, I was looking. It looks like there isn't a real IMAX in in uh, Portland. So, but whatever, it's fine. I don't. I whatever. I'm going to see Oppenheimer and Barbie partly for the bit, more than anything. Else. I doubt I will actually end up seeing them both on the same day, but I guess you never know. We'll see. Maybe I can plan it. But I'm I'm very excited about both of those. For sure. Okay. Well, um, spoilers. Do we want to save Succession until the end so that if people don't <laughs> that, want that the spoilers? Yeah. Then like, okay. So we'll we'll save Succession spoilers till the end. Um, but uh, other TV that I, the only other TV that I've been watching that I really want to talk about at all. Um, Joel's gonna roll his eyes at me again because another reality dating show. Um, because he's a jerk. Uh, but I mean, some general things we finished, uh, love and death, um, some great acting. The show's fine. I don't know. We finished white house plumbers, which I really didn't like. Oh, I forgot to, I forgot a movie. We finished white house plumbers. We watched all the president's men because Morgan had never seen it. Um, and all the president's men is just so much better. (laughs) I mean, that movie's, I mean, of course it's better. Like <laughs> you don't, there just aren't a lot of movies that are better than all the presidents. Man, that movie's so fucking good. No, I mean that is true. And also, the White House Plumbers feels so fucking smug. Like just like oh, like the like it's so zany and like oh, like these people are all fucking idiots. And don't get me wrong, they were fucking idiots. But like, I feel like the all the presidents men just does such a good job at showing, um. Like, how much of it is just, like, people want to be helpful or people just say things because they assume you already know them. Or, like, like yeah, and, like, yes, it's stupid, but it's, like, it's, like, normal human stupid. Also, do you also find it incredibly weird anytime you're watching something about this period? Whenever, but, like, to us, Chuck Colson is, like, the hyper-Christian asshole that puts out a newsletter that my mother reads religiously. And, like, yes, I knew he was involved in Watergate but and did time. But, like, it's just... It, and I genuinely 
do you think that Chuck Colson has like pushed to make it so that no one can portray him? Like, I don't know. It's just weird that he's he was all over the White House plumbers. His name is mentioned in every episode, but we never see him. I don't know that he would have the pull to do that, but I I don't know. Am I not? Yeah, I might have just been too far away from the mic, but I don't know. He's he's uh, like, I think if I it is a weird it's a weird thing. Like if I hadn't already known a little bit about his background when I watched all the president's men, I don't think it ever would have occurred to me like, oh, that's the same Chuck. (laughs) I would have just assumed it was a coincidence. It was two different people. It is an odd thing. Yeah, but it does fucking matter. I will say to keep in mind that one of the foremost speakers and uh, leaders in Christianity was a fucking con man who was (laughs) who did fucking jail time for trying (laughs) to do this. Um, And in my opinion, got out of jail and found a better different con. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. It is interesting. That that is funny that he's he's talked about that much in in the show because he's I mean, I know they definitely he comes into the narrative in all the president's men, but he wasn't like a huge part of it, was he? No, they only bring him up once or twice in the president's men. But in the White House plumbers, they mention it because he was so high. Like they never get to see him, but like they they can anyway. I didn't like the White House plumbers very much. I didn't think it was very good. Um, and I found Woody Harrelson's character like physically unpleasant to watch. In it. I mean, both of them, honestly, Justin Thoreau and Woody Harrelson. I just I didn't enjoy watching them, and I I felt like I didn't really get anything super interesting out of it. But whatever, it's five episodes. Um. But the thing, oh, and Barry finished. I don't know if you. I, I'm six episodes into the last season of Barry. That's uh, so I've got two left, um, and it's great. But yeah, we should probably. There's yeah. I I have heard great things about the ending. I'm hoping to get to it before I actually accidentally read any spoilers or anything. But uh, it's it's a fascinating show, and this last season has been great. So I don't think I like it as much as you, but that's okay. It was fine. Um, but. The show that I have to at least ca- talk about, even if Joel is going to roll his eyes at me. Um, if, God knows if I let Joel rolling his eyes at me stop me from talking. Um, who knows when I would talk? Uh, <laughs> that makes him sound meaner than he is. He's not. But um, and is uh, the new Netflix, The Ultimatum, Queer Love, uh, which I've only watched the first four episodes of at this point. And um, I have feelings. I have a lot of feelings. I have feelings as usual. This is not new for me that there should be more queer reality television. I think queer culture is just like is so well designed for reality television and we should have more of it. But that is not my primary concern at this point. One of my primary concerns is that uh, it really does feel like Netflix is trying to like... Like they are somehow trying to make queer love less queer. It's uh, it definitely feels that way. So here's the thing: we've got for anyone who doesn't know the premise of the ultimatum, five couples come in. One of the ha- one half of each couple has given an ultimatum: I would like to get married. I'm going to need a proposal. If you do not wish to get married, I'm out. Um, I actually find this to be a much more interesting premise for a reality show than things like Love is Blind and stuff like that because you have couples who are already in long-term relationships and so you get more like dynamic between them that isn't just like new relationship energy stuff but what happens is that they break up quote unquote um, and they date around with the other with the other people and then they partner off with new people for three weeks they call it a trial marriage but obviously that's stupid they're they're living with a new person for three weeks and then at the end of three weeks they move back in with their original partner and the sort of general concept for another three weeks and the sort of general concept is by the end there's a proposal or you walk away or maybe you leave with someone else but the thing is that i actually do find this to be a much more interesting 
view of things because because and as someone who's poly like because you do you see things like in a new relationship with someone or you see things in really where you're like you may not realize what's been happening in your relationship right like like maybe you see something like oh shit like this person doesn't do that and i really don't like that here but you haven't thought about it because you've been with this person for several years or like oh shit i really miss this thing you know i mean like it just there's a comparison like element that i think actually can be really interesting and the fact that they are queer means that there is a different vibe to it than in the first season where they were all straight because i mean for one thing queers are not that unused to dating each other's people uh (laughs) so like i actually think there's a lot here that is really interesting and part of the most interesting part of the about the show for me so far is that despite netflix's incredibly obvious desire to strip some of this they cannot take away like some of the like core queerness of the show like they they try but one of the most obvious ways in which they have done this is that not all of the people on the show are identified as female um, so, I mean, first off, before we even got into that, four of the couples are, are mask femme pairings, and one is a femme femme pairing, <laughs> uh, which very much makes it feel like they are trying to, like, you know, look, it's still a man and a woman sort of thing, whatever. Um, but also, uh, so we have, I think, one person who goes strictly by they, them, two or three people who go by she, they, and one person who doesn't use pronouns. This would be a really awesome opportunity to explore some of that. And you're on a reality show. So being able to introduce that, really easy. You have title cards every time you see people. Their pronouns should obviously be on there. They are not. The only reason that we know that people go by different pronouns is because we looked it up. Because there were a couple of them that we were like, mm, you don't seem like a she. Uh, and so we looked it up. And once Wait, you- they don't even have them talk about it or anything? Not a single conversation, which again is wild because the idea of having all of these people in a room, some of whom are using alternative pronouns, and for people who aren't, who definitely know people who are, there is no way that when they first meet, they do not talk about pronouns. Right. That's like a, hey, how you doing level of (laughs) of conversation for a group like that. Yeah. Exactly. And that's even aside from the point that I genuinely was wondering, like, how did they find 10 monogamous queer couples to put in a room. But like, and again, they almost never talk about it. I mean, they found them through central casting. They were probably 10 people who'd never met before and they paired them off as couples and they put them in front of a camera and gave them a script. That's how they make reality television. That is not how they make reality television. And you are not the expert on this, so you don't get to say this. Obviously, a lot of reality TV is bullshit, but these are original couples that you can easily see going back. There is no, like, there is no benefit to them to doing that. Anyway, and like, again, like, you don't have to like this, but don't be a dick. <laughs> like, the, the fact of the matter is that they don't show them talking about it at all. But once you know, you can start seeing certain things, or at least... I can, because that is one of the questions I have is that I'm not sure how this plays to a straight audience. I don't know if you know, because one of the things that I noticed a lot in these first four episodes is that I could really tell when they were cutting conversations the hell up. Like, obviously, every reality show does that. Absolutely. That's part of the thing. If you if someone ever says something on a reality show and you don't see them say it, they definitely plugged that in from somewhere else. Like, that's a, that's an absolute thing. But when I watch like The Bachelor, I can't tell where conversations are cut most of the time because nothing they're saying makes any goddamn sense to me to begin with. I feel like I'm watching people speak a foreign language. So I really was like, is this how straights feel watching The Bachelor? Um, Because to me, I'm like, I understand the conversations you're having. Like I've met 
you know, not these people, but like these people. And like, there were multiple times where Morgan and I would be like, oh, they definitely just cut there because that doesn't make any sense. Like that they went from this to this because we understood what this was to begin with and understood that this did not make sense as a response. And so what we end up seeing is like, is, is like, it's a lot clearer where they're cutting around. I think they are also showing, they have cameras in the bedrooms. I assume they know that going in. They had cameras in the bedrooms before. I feel that they are spending a bit more time on the sexy, sexy in a way that feels kind of gross. Um, anyway, that said, for people who are not my brother and who do find reality television interesting, and particularly if you are queer, this show is something else. And it is like I am invested. I knew who all these characters were by the beginning, by the end of episode one, which has never happened to me in a straight show. <laughs> I like, I have a lot of thoughts and feelings. Anyway, if you are a person who finds reality television interesting, I find this to be like a really enthralling thing. And also fuck Netflix, which is not like new, but like it, it, you really feel them trying to like strip it back. And I don't know why, like the people who are going to be watching the gay dating show or whatever, you're going to tell me they're going to be offended if you use pronouns. Like, I don't know what audience you're going for at that point. I mean, I wonder that about a lot of Netflix's stuff. It seems like their their target audience is just every single person in the world. Um, so who knows? Anyway, you don't have to like it. I know you won't, and that's fine. But please respect my opinion that it is a genuinely interesting sociological thing. I'm sure it is. I think reality TV as a whole is a genuinely interesting sociological thing. I I also think it's sort of inherently exploitative in various ways. Uh, so I, that's fine. I, I, I know a lot of people have very strong feelings. They don't feel that way. They have well thought out opinions. That's fine. I'm not, I don't think there's anything wrong. I'm not saying you're doing anything wrong by watching it, but, uh, it's, it's the opposite of my thing. No, and that's fine. For the record, I am not saying that a reality television is not exploitative. I, I do think that it is in many ways. I was annoyed with you for making you sound like I was stupid and didn't know how reality television was made. That wasn't nice. Well, I mean, that was... That wasn't intended to make you sound stupid. That was just... I know. I'm just telling you. All right. All right. I apologize if that was how that came across. That wasn't what I... That wasn't what I intended. (laughs) It was just a joke about reality television in general. It wasn't intended to be aimed at you. I know. Thank you. Okay. So that's really my only big... My only big one. So I think... I mean, succession is obviously the thing we both want to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've still been... Like, I'm still finishing working my way through the last season of Ted Lasso and Maisel are both, they're both done now, but I'm still, I think I'm, I think we're seven episodes into Ted Lasso. I, 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 did you finish that one? I have like three episodes to go. Okay. Uh, I'm mostly not liking this season very much. Uh, I, I cannot figure out what the hell is going on with Nate in this season. Like they did the whole heel turn at the end of season two, where he becomes the bad guy, which I thought was dumb at the time, but like, I get it like, because they want, they want this last season to have personal stakes for Ted. Right. So you have this guy who he had kind of like mentored and brought up turns on him and becomes the villain. Okay. I, I, I didn't really think it fit with the Nate character that we had seen up till then, but I, I got why they did it, even if I thought it was clumsy, but now it feels like they're trying to like backtrack on that where they like they still have him as a character you're supposed to like and he has this whole like romantic story going on in this season that I think we're supposed to be rooting for I don't have any idea what she why that woman is into him like he liked her restaurant <laughs> that she worked at and that's <laughs> at any rate that's uh 
there's there's a handful of things like that in this show, and the last couple episodes have felt like they felt weirdly like um like they were written as like issue episodes of like a much much worse TV show. <laughs> like we have the anti-immigrant sentiment is evil episode, and then we had the the women aren't to blame when their nudes are leaked episode. <laughs> and like, it seems like there's been a few in a row that have been like written specifically around, like in a, in a really like heavy handed preachy way about these specific issues, which seems really weird for this show. I'm re- I'm, I don't know. There were parts of the women aren't to blame when their nudes get leaked episode that I did think were interesting, mostly parts with Keely and Rebecca, which I thought was, and I actually did really like, some of how that was handled with Keely and the woman she was seeing at the time. But I really hated the whole scene with the team where it's like, oh, wait, we know this girl, then maybe it is bad. I was like, come on, guys. Like, if you're not going to call out that that is, in fact, shitty, don't do that. That's shitty. Um, But overall, and I agree with you about Nate, I don't understand what this woman sees in him or why we're supposed to be rooting for this episode or for for this uh, relationship. But I, I feel like, at this point, with Ted Lasso, I am just kind of like, I really like a lot of these people, and I like to watch them do stuff. And so I, it's like not the worst use of my time, even if I don't think it's like landing it. Exactly. And I think the fact that I know this is going to be the last season, like if it was open ended and it was like, man, there's going to be like four more seasons of this, I might have dropped it by now. Honestly, but it's like I know this is the last season. I still enjoy like four or five of the characters enough that I'm, you know, I don't, I don't like hate watching it. So I'll finish it. But I do think it is. I still really love the first season. And I think it's just, it has really dropped off in staggering ways. I mean, I don't disagree with that. It sounds like I'm enjoying it more than you. um, But I... I, I do agree it's definitely dropped and I, I'm glad it's the last season because it doesn't feel like they had a lot that they knew that they were going to be doing. Uh, okay, I think we can do succession now because I, I think that's the only other thing I had. So, All right, for those of you who do not watch succession, go watch succession um, and uh, we'll see you next time. Um, we're just going to talk about Succession for the rest of the show and spoilers for the final for the finale. So, um, yeah, warning. Right. So it uh, was it was last weekend, right? It wrapped up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, what did what did you think overall? Did you think it worked well as a? Did you feel like it wrapped everything up? Did you feel satisfied? Ten out of ten. Fucking loved it. Yeah, did you, did you see that stupid thread that was going around Twitter the other day of, the, of someone was like, "I can't, this can't be the end. They left all these great open ends. Someone needs to write an AI program to generate some scripts for where this story could go forward." It's the worst, the worst possible shit. Bleak. Uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I also really loved it. Um, it we you know we get the uh, what what I've seen some people complaining about the way the show tends has a lot of like kind of repeated beats um but i i feel like particularly in this the way that the, that it wrapped up it's not that they're doing the same thing over and over again it's that a lot of this stuff is kind of cyclical and like they are going through this same thing again we have again we have this vote this board vote for control of the company which is how was the season 1 or season it was season 1 ended that way right where yes where kendall made this play to take over the company from his dad and then Roman voted against him even though he had told him he'd vote for him and and uh so th- we have this coming back around now again where they we finally have uh 
after the the sibling betrayal of the the whole election thing, they're now all back on board together. They're all voting as a block. They've got the the capital to make it happen. And then, of course, we have the the inevitable collapse of the <laughs> when uh, Shiv decides she's not gonna she's not gonna do it. Uh, and we we get the the that that scene of the three of them in that room where they all it all finally comes to they're all actually saying the things they have where we have Kendall Kendall going through this like like going from like begging like I this is the only thing I can do I am a cog that was built to fit this machine and there's nothing else I can do I will die if I don't get set to screaming I am the eldest boy. This is mine by right. <laughs> like, oh, they, one of the best lines ever uttered on television. I I can't get over it. It's yeah. It, I mean the the whole thing. I mean the, the the core of the show for me, at least, what I've always loved so much about it is the back and forth dynamic of the siblings, and you know the way the the you get different alliances, and they're going behind each other's backs, and sometimes they're all on the same team, and and of course, eventually, it all has to kind of come to a head like this and fall apart. Like, there was no way that they were ever going to end up on the same side. No, but what I love, one of the things I loved, I watched the last two episodes at the same time, because I was out of town when episode nine aired, so Eric came over, and we watched both, watched the 10th one as it was airing pretty close. Um, and I love that we, like for me, what felt emotionally fulfilling to me was that we did get to see that, like the moment of them in the kitchen and like all like you get to, you get to see, and like, it's more, it makes it more tragic in some ways, right? Because it's like, it's there, but they can't access it. But even just to see those moments felt like that was what I wanted. And that was part of why I love this season so much is because I was like, look, I know these people are not well, they're not going to end up okay. I would. I think that Roman is the only one who has any chance of being okay, and that's okay because he's the one who I really wanted to have a chance. Did you know? I saw somebody point out he ordered Jerry's drink at the end. Oh. Yeah, the martini. Yeah. Um, and like the stuff with their parents and their mom and like the, the funeral is one of the most, like, I was like, holy shit. Like that first thing, like that's some speaker for the dead shit. And then like all three speeches had me sobbing. <laughs> Yeah, and that, I mean, in the in the last episode, we have a whole scene where we we I mean, I guess we kind of knew this, but they didn't all know this that their dad had literally promised all three of them control of the company at different times, and so they have all been operating under this assumption that they have been given this thing from their father, and they find out that all three of them <laughs> have this have this same claim, and like, and you know, I don't know what you know did. I, I, Probably Logan didn't specifically do that in order to turn them against each other. He probably didn't think about it in those terms, but that was like the inevitable result of it. And this this final scene with Shiv, or not the final, but the scene with Shiv in the car with Tom, which is such a like, and like, yeah, of course, Tom somehow. Like, I didn't, I certainly didn't call it. I'm not claiming that, but like when it happened, it was like. And in that way, in like he's not gonna he's not gonna defend his wife. He's not he when it's a choice between Shiv and power, it's power, which makes sense because that's the same fucking choice she would make. Right. We literally, well, she did. We saw her make earlier in the episode. She has a conversation with Matson where she's like, "Look, I get it. If you have to get rid of Tom, I'm okay with it." <laughs> she tells him that straight up. So, yeah, no, it's the. Okay, so one of the most discussed aspects of the finale is is Shiv's motivations for the choice that she made at the end, and I'm curious what you think because I've heard a wide array of explanations for it, ranging from she didn't do it because 
she realized that Kendall couldn't handle it and she was doing it for his sake to like, you know, the other pure selfish motivations. I'm curious what you thought. I'm not sure I have a solid, like, I don't, I certainly don't think it was, I don't think it was purely selfish and I don't think it was purely unselfish. I don't think that that any of that is true with any of these characters in the show, particularly when it comes to each other. I think that part of what makes the sibling dynamic so compelling is that I, I believe they love each other in the best way they know how, which is bad. It's a bad way. Uh Yeah. So much of the, so much of the conversation around this show is, is this has been this very like sort of surface level, like, Obviously, these characters don't love each other. Look how they treat each other. And I find that very frustrating. Like, that's that's like the most shallow sort of understanding of how love actually functions and what it even actually is. Uh, and I, I think the show has some really incredible uh, nuance in terms of, of uh, what what love looks like between people in different dynamics. I do think that Shiv genuinely believes that Kendall couldn't do it and couldn't bring herself to go through with that. I don't think that's the pri- the only or maybe even the primary reason. I think that, um, you know, she knew she was like, we saw what happened when Kendall and Roman were in charge. She was cut out. She knows that. She's not stupid. Um, and will she be in like a high seat of power with Tom? No. She will appear to have more of that, the, though. The proximity to power thing, yeah. Um, but I was really struck by this quote that someone posted with the screenshot of them. You may have seen me retweet it. Um, it's from uh, Bonnie Burstow in Radical Feminist Therapy, working in the context of violence. And the quote is, Often father and daughter look down on mother and women together. They exchange meaningful glances when she misses a point. They agree that she is not bright as, the, as bright as they are, cannot reason as they do. This collusion does not save the daughter from the mother's fate. And I think about that and I think about her speech where like her admitting of her like it was hard it was hard to be his daughter I like the real like that moment and someone I also saw in a fan cam someone pointing out that like when Ken like she was like but like he was okay like he, you know he was he was a tough dad but he was okay and when Ken later is like I think I'm a bad dad she's like no you're okay like it's like where <laughs> these like moments where I think that I suspect that in the moment that one yes she knew that Kendall couldn't do it and he could he's he's likely to fucking kill himself now but he definitely would have in that role um but i don't think she cares about the company and i don't think she cares about like any of that but it's prox it's power it's proximity to power this is the best role of the dice that she has and she's pregnant and the kid is coming and she you know maybe she has a chance even though it's going to be miserable because shiv has never been happy in her marriage unless i mean she's never been happy in her marriage really in general but like she needs a like a like substantial power differential in order to do that. She's going to be miserable. She's going to be her mother. If she is, if she's lucky, she won't be Connor's mother. Like, and I don't think Tom would do that, but like, regardless, like not because Tom's a great guy. I just don't think it fits his self-concept, but regardless, like, like I think, I think it's, it's this swirling mess of all of these things that none of these people are self-aware to know why they are doing things themselves. They can't be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the whole the, with the whole thing with all of them being sort of doomed to become their parents is. I mean, I, I think I talked about that a little bit in the last episode we recorded. The the way they they at the beginning of this season, all three of them were like, we're we're separated from dad. We're not doing the dad thing. We're gonna let him do his own thing. We're doing our own thing. We have our own identity. All this, and then as soon as he died, all three of them were like, well, we have to do everything the way dad would have done it, and that's their justification for everything. And yeah, no, your point about shiv's ultimate path having a lot of of parallels with with her mother's is (laughs) yeah 
which is so is so ble- a woman she hates and rightfully so incidentally she's a horrible fucking mother and like and every woman and like it's not even just her mother it's women generally right it's every woman that she saw logan with over the years and who god knows how many that was because we saw him with like five over the course of like that it you know it's every woman that there is no way out of this there is no way out of this trap there is no way outside and like maybe one maybe she has a little more power as the wife than she would as the sister who's not connected and she can't handle the idea of her brother being the one to like because that's so much more personal right no one planned on it being tom like kendall's she's fighting on this and so i feel like it's so many things and like and roman is the only one who by the end is just like this doesn't fucking matter like this, none, none of it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. None of it matters. It's all stupid. And I have the tiniest sliver of hope for Roman that maybe he will find a really good therapist and he will someday have something resembling like a normal human interaction with the world. Also, fucking if Karen Culkin does not get an Emmy, I swear to fucking God. Well, he's going to be, I'm pretty sure him, they're both in best actor category. So they're going to be going against each other. And I don't know. I don't know who comes out on top of that one maybe maybe they split the vote and someone else entirely gets it i don't know karen's karen's uh, acceptance speech would be better that's probably true yeah (laughs) (laughs) so i mean no i think it's incredible i definitely plan to go back and rewatch the whole thing not right away but definitely at some point to me it felt like holy shit like this is like this is like a level of sticking the landing that i have so rarely seen honestly like yeah no i agree it was uh I mean, yeah, I mean, I've I've only watched it once. haven't haven't gone back and rewatched any of it. Uh, but it was, I think, very nearly perfect. Yeah. Yeah, and that I, seriously, I mean, that funeral, like all three, like again, the, and Roman not being able to, like all, like every fucking, also, also, all of the women sitting together in the pew. <laughs> yeah, that which that's I feel like that's the kind of thing that could like, that's like the. It, it could have felt very like heavy handed in the hands of a, a less good writer. I mean, but yeah, no, that was that was great. I was really kind of really hit by that great scene. Fucking masterful. And again, I think we can't we can't take away again. It, it ties so much to Shiv, like so much of this show, not in its entirety, but especially in this last season and throughout does end up being about not just women, but especially women in some ways, um, because other people often aren't even allowed at the table, but like, and like the ways in which there is no fucking way out of this, this box, like these, you know, um, one of the things that Kim Renfro was talking about, um, cause I'm multiple episodes behind. So now I'm listening to them through, I think I just listened to talking about it episode five and she was just climbing the fucking wall about when Matson like hugs Roman and Kendall. And then is like, Oh, am I yeah, going to need a lawsuit? About, yeah. And like that thing of like that that you can you can't escape like Shiv is like one of the richest women in the world and she has you know all of this stuff and has done and it doesn't fucking matter it doesn't fucking matter at the end of the day Matson makes the truly bizarre statement of like why should I hire the woman with the baby in her when I can hire the man who put the baby in her literally is like Tom I would like to fuck your wife your pregnant wife and Tom is like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how great was Skarsgård, though? Like, I, I've talked about him a few times in this show and have been increasingly impressed with him over the last couple of years. He's had this series of just fantastic roles. But, like, I feel like he... he 
when he first showed up, I was like, okay, he's probably going to be in like one or two episodes. It's almost like a stunt casting thing. Like they had Adrian Brody as like a similar kind of tech guy that they were talking to, right? And the, I mean, he was good in it, but it was, you know, he shows up. It's a guest role. But he's he really was like a regular cast member in this season. He's so good. Like such a, just like a weird character that he brings a very strange energy to. And like, he seems to be very like... um sort of unselfconscious as an actor like he'll do like weird embarrassing shit <laughs> that is just very impressive i i really like him i totally agree I also like i hearing him with his actual swedish accent i can he 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 i can see his his dad in him who i've always thought like i'm like his you know the the, the Skarsgård boys are like you know the like statuesque <laughs> like viking model <laughs> things and his dad looks like you know he he looked like he was 70 when he was 30 he's one of those guys who just looks like very run down he's a great actor but he looks like a very sort of like worn down person he, <laughs> and he always kind of has it seems like uh but when 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 he has that swedish accent and like you can you can hear it and see it or at least i can uh what a what a weird family legacy now <laughs> and then the younger one who is making his 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 career doing weird creeper roles <laughs> and like, yeah it's, a, it's an interesting thing but he's he's great he's so good in this role oh absolutely and i mean to be clear like everyone all of the like i mean love seeing scenes with like jerry and carl and frank and like those like behind the th- the scenes not behind the scenes but like when the roy they're not talking to the roys but just talking to each other um just like everyone like uh this the scene that i feel like I sort of got overshadowed for me because of just the whole rest of the show, but like of Jess quitting and like, (laughs) I kind of like every, just every beat, man, there was nothing that I was like, Oh no, that didn't land. Like it all just felt, and like, no, like not every fucking storyline is wrapped up because they're still alive. What do you want? Fuckers? Like (laughs) anyway, so I don't know. Was there anything else you wanted to touch on about that? Uh, No, I don't think so. I think that's, we can probably wrap up there. We've been going for like two hours. Yeah, pretty close. It's a longer episode than I expected. Anyway, um, okay. Well, we will come back next time and we'll talk about doubt. Yeah, any idea when that's going to be? Are we looking at two weeks or uh, is it going to be a while? We will look at the calendar. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, we'll see you all soon. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.